0: wherever you
1: get your podcasts. Hello everyone and welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. Today I am so excited to be talking to a hero of mine today. He probably doesn't even know that, but I guess now he does. <laughs> uh, a total conservation rock star, a shark extraordinaire. I'm talking today with Chris Fisher, who is fighting super hard to protect sharks and other marine animals. He is the founder and expedition leader of Search, which is a nonprofit organization and is recognized as a world leader in generating critical scientific data related to the tracking of biological studies of sharks and other apex predators. Some of you are probably familiar with Osearch. If not, you should be. You need to be right now. Uh, Osearch has been featured on Sharkmen and Shark Wranglers on National Geographic Television Channel, and since 2007. I've got to brag a little bit about Chris and OSearch because he's just such a rock star. Since the inception in 2007, OSearch has conducted 34 expeditions, tagged 416 animals, and worked with over 174 scientists, all with one big boat. So I just got goosebumps, because I'm super excited. Chris. Welcome, welcome, welcome. It's such a pleasure to talk to you today and to talk all about OSearch.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: Ah, you have no idea. I have been following you and OSearch for so long. And when we started the podcast and we began doing interviews, this has been on my dream list for a long time today. So, besides educating everybody about sharks and your OSearch research, I just get to learn and have a lot of fun myself today. This is a big dream come true.
0: <laughs> I'm thrilled to be here. So if Then you, co- you are URO you are search, right? URO search. I mean, that's that's what URO search is all about.
1: Yeah, you're right. They're definitely, uh, we're all conservation heroes. Some of us have a bigger platform than um, others, but yeah, I, I, I'm i definitely an o fan and O-Search hero, and I follow a lot of the sharks and now sea turtles and sea lions, or seals, right? Both. Yeah. um. And so can you just give our listeners and myself a little bit of a background in how you got started?
0: Yeah, sure. So, I mean, you know, I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, and I was that kid who was on the water every day after school chasing fish and frogs around the woods and really just fell in love with being on the water. <clears throat> and, and that was kind of my personal passion. And I had amazing parents, you know, I had a super entrepreneurial, serial entrepreneurial father, um, who was always teaching us that, you know, that you can solve any puzzle if you're creative enough and build an enterprise to do what you're passionate about. And a mother who really instilled a lot of service in our lives where we would deliver meals on wheels on the weekends and things like that. So growing up in Kentucky, loving being on the water outside uh, with two amazing parents and three brothers and a sister. And really, that's where my passion for the water began. But you know, coming from this entrepreneurial family, I studied international business, focusing on Asia and the Pacific Rim at Indiana University and the National University of Singapore, more with a kind of an entrepreneurial flair, Um, and then started a little family business. My brothers and father did when I was still in school and then came out and worked with them for a number of years. And then they sold the business when I was 29. And that's really where my journey on the water began because, you know, I was so passionate about the water. I had to get a new job. I had to go back to work. I thought we were going to work at our little family business forever. And, um, I decided to spend some time on the water. I had gotten moved out to California for our, for our family business. And so I started doing a little fishing, like what am I going to do with the rest of my life? And I would come back from spending time on the water and talk to my peers at the time or in their late twenties and be like, Hey man, I saw some really beautiful things out there, but I saw some kind of scary things, whether it was garbage (laughs) or ghost nets or whatever, and animals tangled up and they were like, Oh, you know, whatever, let's, Let's go out and have dinner. And I was just like, wow, you seem so disconnected to the ocean. And I feel so connected. Why is that? Mm -hmm. And for me, I reflected back and I thought a lot about growing up and watching Cousteau. I mean, Cousteau was pouring the world's oceans into people's lives at radical scale around the world. And people kind of were starting to connect and be aware of its challenges and what was going on. And I was like, oh, that's it. Cousteau had passed away and that was over. And so for the people who didn't grow up with it, you know, they didn't really have a vehicle that was pouring the world's oceans into their lives at a lot of scale. So I was young enough and dumb enough at the time, I just set a noble goal. Like I don't know what I'm gonna do, but I'm gonna pour the world's oceans into people's lives at a scale unseen since Cousteau. That uh, was the noble goal. Um,
1: that is awesome. It's a good like, goal. It's a big goal, though.
0: Yeah, I just That's but I felt good. like if people weren't aware or plugged in or connected to what was going on in the ocean how would they know how they could help make sure we leave a good ocean behind for our kids? So I felt like there was this huge awareness gap. And you know the the easy way for me to start was with a fishing show at the time because that was my passion. So I started the show on ESPN Outdoors called Offshore Adventures. And and that's where I met Captain Brett McBride 20 years ago, who came on board and ran the boat that uh, we used in that show. And our journey on the ocean began there, and we're still on the water together. and we did that show for a number of years. and as we started working on the water, we joined, I joined the board of the Billfish Foundation and started to get reports from scientists about what they thought the billfish were doing, where were they migrating, how were they moving, And uh, it didn't really sync up with us with what we were seeing on the water. And then I learned also that the scientists at the time, they don't have any boats, they don't have any money and oftentimes don't know how to catch what they study. And so while we were making the show, I started taking scientists with us, and we could really accelerate how many tags they put out. Because if they'd been trying to put, say, 10 tags out on Black Marlin, well, we might catch and release 20 of those a year, and they've been working at it for five years and have a couple. I was like, well, we can get these tags out for you. So I started, it, it didn't cost any more money to put the scientists on the boat we were already paying for to make the show. Um, and so I really got into this kind of making business and doing good at the same time, kind of the social entrepreneurial aspect of it. And I really got into accelerating the rate of learning and bringing full-time watermen together with scientists so we could learn faster. And, um, that began to evolve during offshore adventures and we started helping more and more scientists and around 2005, they all started complaining about the sharks, and I was like, what's the shark deal? I don't know, you know, when you're catching and releasing big black marlin and blue marlin and yellowfin tuna and wahoo and other things, you know, you don't, the only people who go shark fishing are people who don't know how to catch fish, you know, what I mean? it was not like a sexy <laughs> thing for us at all. It was like a downgrade. Right. right. And this, But the scientists started saying things like, well, if we don't get these big sharks moving right, our kids aren't going to eat fish sandwiches. There's not going to be lobster rolls. They are the balance keepers. And then they're gone. The second tier of the food chain explodes. And it wipes out all the stuff that we need to grow up for us to eat and for future generations to eat. And they're down to 9% of their historic population due to shark fin soup in Asia. And so I said, well, let's can't we manage those big sharks back like we are You know, helping you learn about the life of this black marlin or striped marlin? And they're like, no, they're so big. We've never been able to catch them and have safe access to them so we can leverage the latest technology to understand where they're mating and when they're mating and their full migratory range, where they give birth, where's the babies, where's the nursery. We don't have the pieces of the puzzle to manage them back. And I was just like, but you just said no big sharks, no fish sandwiches. They're like, yeah. And I said, well, I guess we better do that. (laughs) It must be done. It sounds like it must be done. Yeah, and, you know, and yeah. I want my I love yes, fish sandwiches, and I want my grandkids to eat fish sandwiches. I
1: love fish sandwiches as well. Yeah, and so that's absolutely.
0: really where the beginning of O Search occurred. I mean, you know, I'm not a shark guy, I'm an ocean guy, I'm an abundance person. I want the ocean to be full of life for future generations. It's just that I quickly began to learn that the path to abundance goes through these large sharks, and um, we pivoted at that time in 2007. Uh, And that is when we just started to try to focus our sole effort on capturing large things for the science community that they had not had safe access to so we could leverage the latest technology and solve the puzzle of the lives of these animals that are so fundamentally important to future abundance. And so it kind of evolved out of just a passion for the water. And I never would have dreamed that... um, it would have become what it's become. I mean, because all along, all we were trying to do was just help scientists and include people in the journey and share it. Um, there was no diabolical plan. <laughs> Every time we didn't know what to do, we would be, we were like, okay, well, if we were the ocean and we could tell us what to do, what would they? What would she say to do? You know, what's in the best interest of the ocean? I tried to just make all our decisions kind of like ocean first, because it cut through a lot of. Yes, It cut through a lot of individual agendas. Sure. It cut through yeah. a lot of politics. And just the simple question, what is ocean first? What is in the best interest? And every move along the way, every difficult decision that we didn't know what to do was just measured against what would the ocean do if she could do it for herself? And, um, and now we end up where we are now.
1: And with that incredible question about the ocean and what would she want and how would she want it done? From 2007, fast forward to now 2019, OSearch, your nonprofit organization, has grown incredibly. And so, can you give the listeners a little bit of background of, of course, your mission at OSearch, which sounds you already did that a little bit, but also some of the process about your boat, your crew, and how? How do you tag these sharks that nobody could do before? Well, I mean, our
0: mission now is really evolve from where we began. When we originally started, we just thought we had to help scientists have safe access to large animals and then everything else would take care of itself. We thought all we had to do was just kind of create this safe access for them, capture them. And then, um, then the science was disorganized and we realized we had to try to get scientists to collaborate because they were all working individually. We felt strongly if we were going to catch a white shark, that we had an obligation to that animal to learn as much as possible from every animal we touch so we could solve the puzzle of their life, mm-hmm. touching the fewest amount of animals. And the science...
1: Right. There's no need to... You don't want to. Yeah. And so, but the
0: whole system of ocean research isn't set up that way. All the scientists were in their own individual silos. They didn't work together, they didn't share data because they were all trying to get ahead of one another and get the next grant. So when Mm -hmm. we caught and tagged the first shark, all we did was tag it. And my simple response was, man, we need like 15 more smart people here right now looking at different parts of this animal. And the the answer was, no, you can't do that. I'm leveraging this to get ahead of all those people. And I'm like, well, best I can tell Uh, my guys mm -hmm. put their body parts on the line to do it. And we paid for it. So we're inviting everyone. So the initial real slap in the face was, wow, we have to disrupt the whole approach to ocean science. And believe it or not, it's super disruptive to try to get multi-institutional, multi <laughs> collaborative teams to work together. At least it wasn't that time. Now it's normal, but you know that was really difficult. But um, once we started to get that flow of people collaborating and wanting to open up, things really around 2012 got much, much simpler because we got everybody on that common vision with a selfless disposition, right? We're all going to collaborate for our grandkids and the future fish sandwich Um, And we're going to have more of a selfless disposition (laughs) here. It's not about me or my institution. It's about getting the work done because our challenge is data deficit and time. And uh, we have to do things differently if we're going to overcome that. I mean, the individual orientation of the system is what created the data deficit and time problem. Um, So we had to do things differently. We had to disrupt that old way. And now, you know, when you see how the mission has evolved, you know, I mean, it's actually out there for everyone to see. You know, we're a data-centric organization built to help scientists collect previously unattainable data in the ocean. Our mission is to accelerate the ocean's return to balance and abundance through fearless innovations and scientific research, education, outreach, and policy using unique collaborations of individuals and organizations in the U.S. and abroad. So, one of these things that happens, like I'm a huge fan in this concept that we're all constantly evolving. And he or she who evolves fastest in the world we live in today wins. And so I never would have dreamed OSIRS would be here now compared to where we started. But we were always reaching. We were always trying to get better. When we achieved something people said was impossible, rather than being satisfied, we leveraged that new learning and disposition to see further than we could see before and continue reaching for more. So I'm, I'm big in, into this, like every day you learn things and you make mistakes and you get better. And if you're constantly reaching and evolving, um, then you're always growing and your capacity is growing and your impact is growing. So I think one of the big things about OSearch, like years ago, I never saw OSearch was going to be here where it is now. All I knew is we were an ocean-first organization that was going to put the ocean first and try to bring people together to learn what we had to learn at a rate that had never been achieved so all of our kids can eat fish sandwiches. I mean, it was really – and with that sort of disposition, you just kind of always keep going. You always are looking forward. You're always trying to do more, better, faster, um, more efficiently, more accurately, and then suddenly find yourself in a place you never would have dreamed of you'd been in you know just even three to five years ago.
1: Yeah, it just the evolution's been incredible, and also it's probably pretty exciting because I sh- I'm sure there's a lot more up your sleeve, is a lot more.
0: Oh, I think what you're seeing to- right now is just the tip of the iceberg. Furrow search, you know, proving the model and surviving mm-hmm. and building the capacity, and now we have like 25 published papers or more on our work that are out, with another 20 or 30 getting ready to pop. You know, we're starting to focus more on policy, but I mean, I think and I hope that what you're seeing right now is really the stabilization of O-Search in the last several years that's going to allow us to, number one, make sure it can transcend any individual's lifespan. Yes. You know, that was, I use Cousteau as a lot of my benchmarks. And in the early years when setting up kind of this longer, bigger vision. Mm -hmm. And one of the things we learned was, you know, we couldn't build an organization built around an individual's name because individuals have a finite lifespan. So that's why it's Correct. O-Search, 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 right? O-Search can transcend any individual's lifespan. And we now have it partnered up with our institutional partner, Jacksonville University in Jacksonville, Florida, which is really setting up to be the long-term home of O-Search when I die so that the work can continue. And we continue to serve these scientists around the world and collaborate and open source. And so um, that is is one of the things I'm very focused on now because I feel like we're in that phase now where it's no longer surviving. I mean, you know, the last 10 years, uh, 15 years, and where we've come to over that period of time, in theory, should be far more difficult than where we want to go in the next 20, which is, you know, building this out so it is, becomes a global ocean movement, having a global fleet around the world that's all open sourced and brought into one hub so the world can see the science that's going on that's fundamentally important to the future. And being proud of the ocean, we leave our kids and they know how they can live their lives and are aware to minimize their impact on the ocean and its abundance so that they're doing their individual part uh, to make sure their kid has a good place to live in the future and kind of create so much awareness that we have that individual accountability because we believe an abundant future is going to take all of us. And that's another reason to be open sourcing. And one of our core values is inclusion. And that's because of that. It's going to take us all.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're so excited for your past, the present, and the future. But I do have to ask, how is it possible or if you can walk me through the process of jumping in the water with a white shark and the boat and sure comes up on the boat? If you could just give our listeners a little bit of visual on on how on how the actual process of tagging works.
0: Well, the whole thing comes together and really starts with bringing the practical and the academic together, right? Professional fishermen, watermen who spend their lives on the water, working together side by side with scientists, you know, in this kind of environment of mutual respect. And when we move into an area and we begin working where there's white sharks, sometimes we're in parts of the world where there is nobody knows they just see them in a certain area and that's more difficult and sometimes we're in parts of the world where there's cage diving which makes it real easy because they know where at least the sharks are for some of the time and um, we'll go into that area and we use a single uh, hook and line and it's a it's a rope uh with cable and a hook there is no rod and reel big enough to capture these animals in a timely manner that doesn't put too much stress on them so we handline mm-hmm. all these animals. When they pick up a bait, we'll be out in our little 30-foot center console contender and a a shark will pick up a bait and we will fight that shark with our hands and really try to get the boat in front of the shark. If we can get our boat in front of the shark, sharks don't have reverse. And if you can get in front of them and put a lot of pressure on them, they can't really turn and they'll choose to give up. They have a condition called learned helplessness. I would actually say to you when we started our work, we caught sharks. Now we quickly train sharks. More like teaching a dog how to heal than catching a fish, because I mean, in our early days, if we caught a four thousand pound shark, it might take us three hours to get it into the lift. Now we'll get it in in thirty minutes. It's clearly chosen to give up. We'll catch a six thousand pound shark in six minutes, right? So these animals aren't tired; they've chosen to give up. So once we get control of them with the contender, and we're walking them back to the lift, and there's buoys in front of them so they can't dive under the lift, we swing them into the lift. And then the one person that does jump into the water <clears throat> is Captain Brett does that for me. He jumps off the contender into the lift, uh, you know, 30 feet in front of the shark or so, so that he can take the line that's attached to the shark and walk over and make sure that the shark swims into the cradle because otherwise they can just swim around the outside of it. So you have to change that point from which you're pulling the animal in. So he, he jumps across with the line, puts it over a post that's mounted in the cradle and that changes the direction from which we're pulling the shark and pulls it right into the cradle then the cradle is basically a big pallet that can pick up 75,000 pounds out of the water it's you can pick up a 50-foot boat with that lift and put it on the deck of the ship Uh, we've built a, a fence around it for lack of a better term we swing the shark in there and then we slowly pick the shark up out of the water and then when the shark comes out of the water two hoses go in the mouths of large sharks for their gills, one on the other side. If it's a smaller shark, it gets one hose. And then a whole team of researchers comes down and we'll conduct 17 research projects on the animal in about 15 minutes. First thing we do is we'll get a blood draw so we can check the animal's stress levels in real time and understand how the animal's doing. And also we get all sorts of other information. Like if a female has elevated hormones and she could be ready to mate and, um, all sorts of general health assessment information from the diet. We're testing now with blood for all sorts of toxins in the water like mercury. And and then when that happens, people then proceed to use, we put three tags on every shark. We put an internal acoustic tag on it, a pop-off tag for dive profile and temperature data, and then the spot tag on its fin so that we can track it. While that's occurring, um, there's an ultrasound being done on the shark. If it's a male, we're trying to get a semen sample. We get fecal samples from all of them. We're getting the bacteria off the skin of the sharks because we're in the midst of antibiotic development around the bacteria for humans. We're finding a lot of bacteria on these sharks seem to create antibiotics that's very effective against things like staph and MRSA. Um, We're getting tissue samples from the shark so we can to uh, understand its diet in more detail. And also there's some cutting edge stuff with tissue samples you can do that may or may not be able to help you understand reproductive cycles. Are um, oh, there so much that we do? Oh, we're doing a whole study on their eyeballs. So we take photographs of their eyeballs. We get the bacteria off their teeth, tongue, and gums, and we test that against antibiotics in the communities in which we're living. So if there is a shark incident, they know what antibiotic to use right away. Because most most of the damage that comes from shark is from infection later, and if you don't go sure. to the right antibiotic right away, it can become a runaway infection and cause lo- loss of limb or life. And so, like this next expedition in Nantucket, we have a, a dedicated uh, project getting bacteria off the teeth, tongue, and gums of those sharks in Nantucket, so that, and we're working with the local Nantucket. Um, emergency services so that they have the right antibiotics on hand if they have an incident there. So there's this kind of uh, suite of of programs going on that some of which are for solving the life history puzzle of the white shark. Where and when is it mating? Where is it migrating? Where does it give birth? Where are the baby sharks? What's the nursery? How do they move through it? And then in parallel, there's some uh, biomedical work going on to try to improve the quality of life for all of mankind as well.
1: And yes, Chris, a lot of your research has already found or learned groundbreaking things about the white shark, right? Can you share some of that information about how they migrate in some of these nurseries?
0: Sure. I mean, you know, first of all, we're establishing the baseline of their movements. For the first time ever, we have their full migratory range. So we know how to manage them and where they travel. And that will be used in the future to be compared against future migratory ranges to see if anything like climate change is affecting their movements in their range. Um, So within that, I mean, when we started doing this work back in 2007, um, you know, suddenly you're tracking a white shark for five years. Well, that never happened before. (laughs) That's and so incredible. we started to see the one-year migratory loop of the male, the two-year migratory loop of the female. We had the females start leading us to their birthing sites for the first time. Then we went to the birthing sites and we tagged the baby white sharks and they defined the nursery. And so we're able to see where they live the first years of their lives and then as they, cha- as they mature, how that migratory range changes. And, you know, if you just zero in here on the northeastern United States or in the northwest Atlantic Where we're working now between Atlantic Canada and Florida, what have we learned since 2012? Well, we knew we had some sharks up in Massachusetts and the gathering in the fall. Those sharks led us down to Northeast Florida. Uh, We tagged a shark there that led us to Newfoundland. And we started to see this thing develop. We've got 43 sharks tagged in the Northwest Atlantic. And we've started to see these two separate fall aggregations, one in Nova Scotia, one off the northeastern United States. We found at least one birthing area off the New York, New Jersey Bight, right on the south shore of Long Island. So some of these sharks are mating in La- Nantucket and giving birth in the Hamptons. So they got that highbrow lifestyle. And uh, I was going
1: to say, they've, they've figured a lot out. Uh, <laughs> well, they've
0: been they've around a couple hundred million years. In life. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> And then the female, the, the baby sharks are born there in the New York, New Jersey bite. They stay there until the winter sets in and it cools off and they slide south. And in the first year of their life, they're sliding south as far south as South Carolina, all okay. coastal movements. And then mm. uh, when the water starts to get hot again in the next summer, they move back up to, the, to that New York, New Jersey bite. They're up there eating all the menhaden. There's a lot of life in there um, and mackerel and squid. And so we're seeing these two separate fall aggregations in the Northwest Atlantic, similar to what we saw in the Pacific. We found at least one birthing area. We're still trying to understand, and this Nova Scotian science is emerging so fast because so many more sharks, once we went up there for the first time last last September, we tagged six sharks for the first time up there with spot tags. And they showed us that they came down and they mixed with all of the Massachusetts white sharks. So many people are familiar with the white shark cafe out in the Pacific or the shared offshore foraging area out there. Um, Our white shark cafe in the Atlantic is the Southeastern United States bite between Cape Canaveral, Florida and Cape Hatteras, North Carolina. The Gulf stream pins a cool body water in against the beach and they're all milled around in this massive area. in in pursuit of a lot of the different fish runs and whale birthing and various other food sources they have there where they overwinter. Um, The females can only return to these fall aggregations every other year because they have this 18-month gestation period, so they can't return to the fall aggregation sites, uh, which is where we're guessing they're mating right now because the timing lines up Mm -hmm. with birthing, uh, because they're already pregnant. So we're seeing our big mature females It seems like when they don't return, they're swinging way offshore into the middle of the Atlantic. And we believe that's out where they're out leading a low-risk lifestyle um, because they don't want to bump into a male white shark. Uh, The mating is violent and they're already pregnant. And they sit out there while they gestate, and then about eighteen months after they left their fall aggregation, they make a run into the beach. And the only one we were able to clearly see was when Mary Lee did that up into the New York New Jersey bike, which is what led yeah, us to going I up there. I followed
1: Mary Lee. She was she was actually my first introduction to O Search. Yeah, and Mary Lee was a transformational and- shark
0: for O Search, and quite frankly, she probably yeah. saved O
1: so cool. And and now, besides tracking sharks, you guys are also tagging sea turtles and seals?
0: Yeah. So what's happened is a lot of other researchers have wanted to share their work with the general public. Uh, and this didn't happen in the past. And so since there were so many people coming to the tracker to follow the sharks, I would have a turtle scientist or someone say, hey, can I put my tracks up on the Osearch tracker? And I would say, yeah, sure, no problem. We do that for them for free so that people can see their research, they can track their sharks. And then we have an integrated STEM educational curriculum like while the kids track the sharks, they can use our free STEM educational curriculum and learn physics and math and oceanography. And maybe somebody wants to use the movements of a turtle to learn their math problem today instead of the movements of a shark. And also it allows you to see the system coming together, right? When we get the tracker populated, if you can visualize in the future where you have sharks and sea lions, and seals, whales, turtles, we understand our historic fish migrations, so and we overlap that people will be able to see the ocean system collide. You know, if you go to mm-hmm. Africa and you're on the Serengeti or the Masai Mara, you can see the system collide, right? You see the lion take down the water, the Cape Buffalo or the, or the Impala. Well, we don't get to see that in the ocean. So if we can get the tracking right, we can start to allow people to see how the system works together. For the most part, the only people who really see that are people who work on the water every
1: yeah, that's just the whole the whole ecosystem or the big picture is, yeah. like you said, really critical to understand from top to bottom down or bottom to top, right? That's right. right.
0: You know, it's all interconnected, uh, right? But we know that these big white sharks are the balance keeper, just like mm-hmm. the lion or the wolf in Yellowstone. So yeah. if we can get them trending in the right direction, we know a big part of the system will trend in the right direction.
1: Well, and you bring up an amazing point, which I'd like to focus on is what are some of these pressures sharks are facing? Well, historically it's
0: been shark fin soup, right? And foreign long mm-hmm. lining vessels capturing sharks, finning them and sending those over to Asia for shark fin soup. As, as Asia has emerged uh, you know, financially and there's more capacity of people, they can buy a hundred dollar bowl of soup and it's big face over there. If you have a family gathering or a wedding to be able to serve shark fin soup, and the population of people who could afford that vastly exceeded the rate at which sharks could replace themselves. Because again, these white sharks, they have to live 20 years before they can mate and replace themselves. So they have babies late in life and they have very few infrequently, right? A female white shark will give birth to an average of about eight pups every other year after she's 20. So wow. if you- Slow hit the sharks hard, you just make the whole system collapse because none of the sharks are becoming mature fast enough and it implodes. And that's how we got down to about nine. Most sharks are late to mature and have few babies infrequently. Now there are exceptions to that rule, but generally speaking, they can't handle a lot of pressure. They're not made to, they're not supposed to be able to jump in numbers like a mahi, you know, because then you'd have too many sharks. And, uh, and, and, and so, um, They just couldn't handle the pressure, and it caused the populations to collapse. Now, I'm happy to say in the last several years, the demand for shark fin soup is way off. The Chinese government's no longer serving it. The big hotel chains aren't. A lot of transportation organizations won't carry it. And so we are going to win this one. I think the demand for shark fin soup is off about 40% from its peak. Um, But we're seeing other things emerge, like people just capture sharks to eat them because they've Mm -hmm. the rest of the fish have been removed um so there's also the shark meat trade has become a significant impact uh, on their population but the awareness level is out there now and usually awareness is the beginning of the solution and so the demand for education and education yeah and so it's demands dropping we know more now about where the baby white sharks and where they're mating and things so we have the capacity to manage them and look after them and this, that we're going to win this one in the United States. Now, when you get outside the United States and there's not as much management and enforcement, it's still pretty much uh, devastating for most shark populations.
1: And now, Chris, we talked, of course, about awareness and education to help conserve these beautiful beasts, if you will. What else is Osearch doing to help conserve the great white sharks and other marine animals? Well, you mentioned policy and things like that.
0: Yeah. So we're in the beginning of opening the o- Osearch Ocean Policy Institute at Jacksonville University. I'm on the Hill, or someone from my team is on the Hill regularly every year. And we bring a lot of the wow. staffers of the congressmen and senators out on our ship, as well as the members of both houses. And... Um we right now we are really becoming I think a centrist data oriented advisor to a lot of policymakers because so much of the policy that comes across their desks has you know tilted with an agenda or an angle, and we try to give them that ocean first here's what the science and the data says because we don't need them to give us any money we're not asking them for money to fund our work, so we're trying to become that centrist resource and eliminate the polarization that, that takes place from the, the people that are constantly super emotional about all these issues, right? The path to abundance is not emotional. It's just math and science. And right. um, sometimes you get people on either side of an issue and they're so position oriented, they're not solution oriented. So we try to pull everyone to the middle and create practical opportunities to move forward. Uh, we have worked on a couple policy issues, uh, and that's been great. But I think we're just seeing the beginning of that now. One of the great things is, is because so many people follow Ocearch, we have a big constituency base, and so when yeah. we come in and we talk to uh, the the senators and the congressmen about what our community feels about this and what the science and the data says, uh, it's it's been great to become a resource for them. And as the Ocean Policy Institute kind of evolves. I think you're going to see us making a much bigger play in that space. You know, when we started, I thought all we had to do was capture the sharks and then the science and the policy would take care of itself. Well, uh, you know, coming from more of a for-profit disposition than a non-profit, the science was slow and it wasn't integrated. And so we formalized our science program. Uh, Dr. Bob Huter of Moat Marine Lab is our chief science advisor and runs our whole science committee, which meets every month. And now we're driving the scientists to finish their work and get these papers published. So we've really formalized in the last, say, four or five years, our whole science program. Because look, we're funding millions and millions of dollars of research, and we're doing it mm-hmm. for fish sandwiches, not for <laughs> people just to have careers and you know get a paycheck. So exactly. we need people to do their job and get it done in a timely manner, so then it can be leveraged for policy. So it's kind of a three-step thing: you got the field work, the science. And then you got the policy. And I think we're just kind of maturing enough now where it's time for us to begin formalizing our policy procedures and, and the structure around that. So you'll see a lot more of that in the coming years. The field work will always continue, but you know, when it takes so long to create the data and have the data so the scientists can then publish that getting everything ramped up and started, sometimes the first seven years are just data collection. And now we have all of our early data, plus we have the data that's being created every year, and it's finally starting to spill into these published papers that can be leveraged for policy. So you're going to see a big, big shift as we have more and more capacity to make an impact in that area.
1: Uh, I'm so excited. It's going to be incredible. And, uh, And like you said, just getting everybody on board and moving in a quicker fashion. I know being in science myself, sometimes it can be so slow. Well, and you can't <laughs> compromise
0: is- the he- quality of the data. You can't do it fast just to be fast, but you can be more Correct. efficient. Um, Absolutely. And and Absolutely. our and quite frankly, our great grandchildren don't ha- they don't have any other choice other than for us to be more efficient. Because if Absolutely. we're not, that's not going to be so nice place for them to hang around. There's like three billion people a year who count on seafood every day for their protein, <laughs> and they need their w- fish sandwiches. We need to too. make sure Absolutely. that there's fish for them to eat, and so. Um yeah, no, I I like striving for efficiency, but not at the cost of compromising quality.
1: Exactly. And and since it is summertime here and I'm I'm based in Florida and in Jacksonville University, where one of your home bases is, we are surrounded by sharks. And just in the news, just I think it was this past weekend, three people were bit on a new smear in a beach, I believe. Nothing nothing drastic, everyone was fine. But we keep hearing about sharks, and 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 there's always this fear I from a lot of that a lot of people have of sharks or sharp bites, and I don't that doesn't necessarily bode well to their long term survival.
0: Well, you know, in regards to what's going on down in Florida, look, you have this massive bait migration, and then there's huge schools of black tip sharks that migrate with it and feed, and if you choose to swim out in the middle of that you know, a ankle. you're going to get bit in the ankle, right? And we call those, yeah. we call those sharks down there, ankle biters. Uh, I
1: love it. You yeah. know, okay. and you're like, have li- to like get little a, dogs. Yeah. Right? You're going
0: to have to give a, a, some <laughs> stitches, but you chose to swim out in the middle of a bait migration where black tip sharks are feeding on them. So there's got to be some individual accountability, right? If, if, if you were looking out at, uh, if you were in Africa or even in the American West and you were looking out and the lions were feeding or chasing the wildebeest, you would not walk out in the middle of the wildebeest. But for no some reason, way. but, but uh-uh. for some reason, we choose to think we can go in the ocean wherever and whenever we want, and we don't stop and look at it like, oh, what's going on in this piece of ocean? What's
1: actually happening?
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. like, oh, wow, look at all the bait and the birds crashing. Oh, yeah, the, the game fish are feeding on the bait. Well, of course, the sharks are in there feeding on the bait and the game fish, too then you have to make a choice. Are you going to choose to walk out and go into the middle or swim out into the middle of the food chain? Well, you can, but I I would (laughs) suggest to you that if you were on land and you were looking at uh, mountain lions on elk, you wouldn't do that. So um, there's this different disposition that we have. When we look at the ocean compared to looking at the forest or the woods, we feel like, well, I can decide what beach I'm going to and I'm going to go there and I, I can go swimming wherever and wherever right, that's I when, want. That's
1: where my relatives live and yeah, that's the I time a, off. And that I, I have can get the, get the right work. to
0: do that instead of saying, well, I'm going to exactly. go down to the beach. I'm going to take a look at the ocean. If it's nice and quiet, I'm going to enjoy my day in the ocean. If the food chain's going off, I'm going to move down the beach where it's not. We don't really have that same level of engagement with the ocean. People just think they should be able to go out whenever and wherever they want. Nothing should happen to them. And look, you, when you go in the ocean, you're going out into the wilderness. And yeah, uh, I love that. Uh, yes. you, know, it, you should understand what's going on in the wilderness before you just blindly walk into it or just decide to go and do, because you're going anyway. You know? So there's a disconnect there. And I would suggest to you, it's, it's shocking how few shark incidences there are when people, for the most part, don't do that. They just go down to the ocean and go in, you know, and the job of the sharks is, is to call the weak, the dead and the dying, in particular, when you're talking about white sharks. And so if you're going to go out and go in the water where there's a bunch of seals and put on a black wetsuit and swim around, you look like the weak, the dead or the dying, because even the most fit person is clumsy in the water compared to a seal. And a white shark Mm -hmm. comes along to do its thing, which is to keep the seals on the beach so our food and and our fish can thrive and occasionally eat a seal. And when you're swimming around with them and you look like a clumsy seal, occasionally they take a bite and then they spit you out because they realize it's the wrong thing. And to me, there's so many of us putting ourselves in the wrong spots so frequently. It's amazing how good the sharks are at deciphering the difference. Because it happens so infrequently, you know, it's about an average of six to eight fatalities a year when it comes to uh, large sharks, and we are swimming around with them all the time. I mean, if you look at the tracker and you live on the east coast of the United States, you're swimming with white sharks all the time.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, but they're more afraid of you than than you are of it, right? Just like a lion in the forest, you're hiking through the forest. It sees you before you get there, and it leaves, bugs out. It's nervous. Right. These white sharks are the same way, except for every once in a right. while we put ourselves in the wrong spot, and they come along to do their job, and we look like the weak, the dead, and the dying, and, and those two um, paths collide, and you have a shark incident, and it's it's really shocking how infrequently it occurs. And people, you know, people ask me questions about sharks, you know, eating people or whatever. I'm like, look, like, none of these sharks are eating people. Like they bite them once, and they know they made a mistake, and then they yeah, leave. Yeah,
1: we taste like. We taste right. like Doritos and Twinkies and Mountain Dew. Too bony. I don't want that.
0: And so, yeah. <laughs> and so, but what's amazing is how infrequently it happens, which means they're actually looking at all of us and realizing that's the wrong thing, that's the wrong thing, that's the wrong thing. And then when one of us gets ourselves in a bad spot, it just can't kind of tell the difference in the clutter between the people and the seals or the bait fish and the ankle. Um, and, and then these things happen, but really, you know, the only thing you, there's nothing you can do when you see all this policy and everything where you have people trying nets and smart buoys and all these other things, the odds of a shark attack are like one in 13 million. So yes, if you understand the law of diminishing returns, which I'm sure you do as an educator, the amount of effort or capital required to make it one in 13 million and one is astronomical. Because the Mm -hmm. odds are already so low, it's so unlikely that it will occur that to make it less likely is almost impossible. Right. And -hmm. so the only thing that can be done is for people to stop and take a look at the ocean before they go in. And if the bait's there Mm -hmm. and you know you're in an area where there's sharks and the game fish and the birds are there, um, you have to make that decision, but you're choosing to do that yourself. Um, And that's the only way you can slightly affect it. There's no, drumline or net or anything that is going to reduce the odds from already such a a low level. And it's interesting to me as, as humans, how difficult it is for people to come to grips with the fact that no one else can do something for me. I'm the only one who can reduce my own likelihood of an incident by getting to know the environment that I'm going into and looking at it and making smart choices. Everybody wants everyone else to fix their problems. It's like, no, man, this one's on you. Like you got to take a look at it. You got to think about what you're doing and you got to accept the risk and then go enjoy it. And I would suggest the odds are so low, do it. I mean, if you measure, if you, if you measured that level of risk against anything else you have in your life, you would immediately get rid of your dog. A couple hundred people a year die from dogs. You would right, never go de- on a farm.
1: Cows. Yeah, you would yeah, get car- all cattle. Cows and horses.
0: Never mm-hmm. get on a bicycle. You know, you'd never cross the street. You'd never leave your house. You'd never take a selfie. 20 people a year die taking <laughs> selfies. 400 people a year die from defective toasters. So if you're afraid of sharks when there's six fatalities, in theory, you should be terrified to make toast, right? So <laughs> it's a it's a you know, you can only really sum it, it all up that it's like it's an irrational fear that doesn't statistically exist. But I do understand that it strikes a, the, the center of us all. It strikes the core of our survival instinct. And that's what gives our feelings such a unproportional weight to the reality of what's going on around us.
1: Absolutely. No, I, I, I work with horses and I know that I have a much more higher incident of getting harmed by a horse, death by a horse, than ever swimming in the ocean. And I think it's a... I think it's really important that educators, ocean educators, help make that really clear because it can be hard sometimes to fight against media or the sensationalism and things like that. Well,
0: yeah, and sometimes you can say real simple things like, "Look, if sharks wanted to eat people, ten thousand people a day be
1: eaten. Exactly. Yeah. They
0: they just swim around the beach and slurp Gobble up people.
1: Gobble them up. Mm-hmm.
0: So I mean, obviously, that's not occurring.
1: No. You know. No. So yeah, and I always I always like to teach people too. It's like I think we taste really gross. I mean. Think about something. We're not else. fatty
0: enough. Too bony. <laughs> yeah.
1: And so for people that are anti-shark, I'm not one of them by any stretch of the imagination. I love the oceans and I love every creature in there. But how do you get people excited about sharks that either fear them or don't think that they're worth conserving?
0: No, oh, Two things. I mean, the big thing we did to really shift the tone of the conversation around sharks is give the sharks a voice, mm-hmm. right? So the sharks, you can tweet these sharks, they'll tweet back and you can learn about their lives Awesome. and you can see where they are. So people are now engaging with these sharks all the time. They see on the tracker, we're all swimming with them. Nothing's happening for the most part. And, and that's been a huge thing to kind of undo everything JAWS did, shift the tone of the conversation around the sharks. Um, so people can see that you know we're around, they're around us all the time. we're all swimming with them, and not, not for the most part, nothing's happening and uh, it, secondly,
1: oh sorry go ahead, is
0: to come to come to grips with the fact that if the sharks don't thrive, your grandkid's not going to eat any f- seafood so if if you want people to be able to eat in the future, you need to respect the shark and look after the shark. We need to be loving up on these big sharks the same way we love up on our big cats. <laughs> I, love I mean, they have the same role in the ecosystem. They are the big cat of the ocean. And so uh, a couple little things should be able to help you get that. Now, sometimes people hear that and they say, well, it's, I'm still scared to death. Well, it's like, it's okay. Well, you still, you can't rationally overcome the emotional fear uh, with the data that's been presented to you. And that's fine. That's cool. And then you can still say, well, I'm afraid of sharks, but I understand If we don't get the shark thing right, our kids aren't going to eat food. And so for that reason, um, I'm going to make whatever water usage decisions I'm going to make. But uh, I definitely want my kids to be able to eat food. So um, that's kind of the main thing. You know, it's all overblown. And I think uh, the other thing that's happened with the sharks having a voice and open sourcing the tracker is that there's all these articles and newspapers when big white sharks are pinging off beaches and moving along the coast And then you have a story about a shark and the question is, what is the shark doing? Is it pregnant? Could it be mating? Is it a baby shark? And then there's all these conversations going on that don't have anything to do with a shark interaction or a shark incident. Mm -hmm. So then when there is a shark incident, you have thousands of news stories about sharks and one shark incident story. And it puts the life of the shark in better perspective. Because it used to be when we couldn't track them and we didn't know where where they were, the only story that came out was the shark incident or shark attack story. And now that's dwarfed by thousands of stories that have nothing to do with that.
1: Yeah, definitely. And how can the average person help conserve sharks or get involved with some of the amazing resources Osearch makes available?
0: Well, there's multiple different answers to this question. (laughs) First thing, which may not sound like it makes sense to you, is you got to knock off the single-use plastics. Okay. Okay. There's so much. The plastic problem in the ocean is far worse than even people think today, even though there's great awareness. We've been working on a kick plastic campaign going back to 2010. And in the last you know, three years or so, everyone's starting to get the whole plastics problem, and that's great. But we're seeing plastics in the fish. We are eating plastic, and it's all coming from us because it's going out into the ocean. It's getting consumed in the food chain, and then ultimately when we eat a fish or something, it's consumed by us. And the sharks are eating the fish that are full of plastics and it's impacting their lives. It's impacting our whales. Our whales are dying because they're full of plastic instead of food. Um, So we got to get rid of the plastic bags, the single use plastics. That's just kind of a no brainer when when historically a hundred years, when they look back at us, they're not going to believe this whole plastic thing even existed. It's, it's just, it is a far worse crisis than you can imagine. Uh, Secondly, Uh, For all the ladies out there who are using makeups, make sure there's no squalene in your makeups. They get squalene by killing sharks, and squalene is a very big product in the cosmetic industry. So a lot of people are contributing to sharks being taken, and they don't even know it through the purchase of various types of makeup and cosmetics. Um, Thirdly, and I think this is the most powerful thing we can all do, we're entering this era of conscious capitalism. When you go out and buy your everyday goods, know who you're buying from. Only buy from companies that are making business and doing good at the same time. And then you become a lifelong philanthropist while you're buying your everyday goods. And what that does is that forces the companies to make business and do good at the same time if they want to compete with the ones that are already doing that. So um, there's a lot of companies doing it now and they're winning right? Absolutely. Um, because people want to know like, Oh, I need a pair of sunglasses for the ocean. I'm going to buy a pair of sunglasses that for someone who's making sure the ocean's full of life down the road, or I need a cooler to go out on my boat or, you know, go to the beach. I'm going to buy it from a company that's doing good for the ocean because I need the cooler anyway. Right. And that could also be just a company who is doing something good for people who are homeless or people who are hungry or a medical research Conscious capitalism is the way we are going to leverage every company in the world and make it in their best business interest to create a wonderful future for our planet and our kids by understanding who we give our money to every day. Yep. Can you imagine if we had the capacity of the Fortune 5000 making business for our everyday needs while they are making sure the planet is a better place in some area or another? Otherwise, we are not going to purchase from them. Mm -hmm. And that is. And and with connectivity today, you can look on your phone in two minutes and find out who you're getting ready to buy from if they're doing anything good for the planet or people. And it's not a a difficult thing to figure out.
1: No, absolutely.
0: So I, I really believe in conscious capitalism. I believe you see we're entering the era of cause marketing. They're all doing that because people are buying from companies that are doing good while they make business. And if we all focus on how we spend our money, then that's going to shift the businesses to becoming the vehicle of abundance of the future.
1: Yeah. Vote with your dollar. That's what I always say.
0: Exactly. Mm-hmm. It's just that simple.
1: I mean, we all should go to the polls too, you know, when, when you well, when yeah. the time comes, but every day you can vote with your dollar and send that message. <laughs>
0: and there's companies that get it right. Yes. Like, so coast of sunglasses has been supporting us for over a decade. It's actually in their best business interest for the ocean to be full of fish. Right. They realize nobody's going to need a pair of $250 sunglasses if there's not a whole bunch of fish to go see <laughs> exactly. or enjoy. Yeti coolers, they get it. Mm-hmm. They've been funding us for over a decade as well. No one's going to need a Yeti cooler if there's no fish in the ocean. Right. And no one's mm-hmm. going to want to go there or go into the forest and camp if there's no life. So these, these companies, amongst many others, uh, SeaWorld is an ultimate example that really gets such a hard time that's so bizarre they've saved tens of thousands of marine mammals and pioneered much of the research we're using to save the animals of today. And all they are really doing is making business with a park and putting a tremendous amount of their resources into creating an abundant future for the ocean and for wildlife. And so these companies that are making bu- making business and doing good at the same time, if we all vote with our dollar that way, more companies are going to do it. We're going to have more capacity to learn faster and affect change sooner, and our kids are going to eat fish sandwiches. <laughs> I, so love, I love I, it. I, I really think that conscious capitalism, ultimately, over the next decade and all this cause marketing you're seeing, is is really going to be the solution because it's going to radically increase the capacity to affect change.
1: Yeah. No, Definitely. And the future is bright, and there, and a lot of it is in our hands, which is is good to know.
0: Oh, hey man, if you're not optimistic, you've already lost. Exactly. You ha- we cannot, we can't lose this one. No, because losing, I don't know if any people have really thought about what the implications are of losing. Like, uh, I think all this fancy space exploration stuff is nice and it's cute, whatever but like, I don't want to go live in a dome on Mars. (laughs) No, we're, we're we're already on a spaceship. It's called planet earth. And it is an awesome spaceship. It has like oceans and mountains and we're hurling through space on it. All we got to do is make sure we look after our crew right? and the crew or the animals and the plants and the trees that maintain our spaceship. Why would we kill our crew? Right. And in the past we've been doing that. And now we're starting to realize we can't and, um, we're going to enter an area where we're going to turn this planet around. We have to. We have no choice. We must expect to win. And um, it's the coolest spaceship going.
1: It is pretty cool. I know. I Everyone
0: talks about going and living on other planets, but no one talks about the quality of life once you get there. Right.
1: Right. We We have a pretty high quality of life here and we need to keep it that way. Absolutely. It's
0: the coolest spaceship in the universe. (laughs) Our spaceship has like oceans and mountains and snow water.
1: How about rivers? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And so with the younger generation coming up, do you have any advice for students that might be interested in a career in the ocean or in ocean conservation?
0: The biggest thing I say I get this question a lot from students when I'm dealing with them as I move around is that make sure you also study communications and content
1: Mm -hmm.
0: as like a minor. Because if you can't tell people why you want to do what you're doing and why it's important, then why should they help you? And so in the science space, generally speaking, we have big communications challenges, right? They're very smart people and they're doing great work, but they can't communicate about it. And we're entering this era of connectivity and content across all these open platforms where if you don't understand content and you don't understand communicate, communicating, you basically have nothing to say. And how can anyone help you if, if they don't understand why you're doing what you're doing and and what it means to the future. So I think my big thing for everyone is we're entering the era of total connectivity. So communication is fundamentally important. So regardless of the the discipline you're pursuing in the ocean space or any other, Make sure you learn how to create some content and communicate with it so people can understand why what you're doing is important and then they'll help you because people want to help. Oftentimes they just don't know how or they don't know why they should help you.
1: Yeah, it's communication is key and it's not always these devices that we have, everything at the touch of the screen is wonderful for connectivity, but it doesn't always help with communication. And so I, I do think that's a really a really big key in being involved in science and learning how a lot of us are just awful communicators. <laughs> it's, it's been really eye-opening for me to be able to talk about science in one sentence of what you want to do. Yeah, and the, the world's changed,
0: right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the world's changed. It used to be you could operate in a silo and make a science paper, would come out in some journal, and then maybe someone would pursue it in policy. But now the whole world can be anywhere, anytime in real time. And so you got to bring everybody into that world so that they're aware and they care and they understand what to do. Yeah. So it's a it's a really exciting time to be alive. O-Search could not exist as it does today if it was if I tried to pull it off before the era of connectivity right. simply, it, we, it, wouldn't it really fun- we wouldn't be funded.
1: Yeah, absolutely. and um, and definitely speaking of connectivity, For all of our listeners out there, you can definitely learn so much more about Chris and his team and the fantastic work that they do at osearch.org, and that is with a C, so it's O-C-E-A-R-C-H. And we're going to, of course, uh, put up a nice bio and a lot of links on our show notes for you to connect to on our website at allcreaturespod.com. And of course, Osearch is on Facebook. Got to follow them on Instagram wonderful pictures, great stories, uh, and it'll help you stay connected with all the cool work that they're doing and fabulous photos. And you can, of, don't
0: forget, you can tweet the sharks.
1: And you can tweet this. Absolutely. You can tweet the sharks. And too. the
0: scientists, all of us. And yeah. they
1: respond, which is just
0: that's right,
1: so much fun. I haven't done that. So I'm going to do that as well. And, and then you also have a tracker app as well, right?
0: Yeah. You can go to osearch.org on any device. And um, you can track all the sharks and see all the sharks and turtles and seals and everything pinging in real time and where they are. And it's become great for people to learn. And that's what's integrated into the STEM educational curriculum. And also actually public safety uh, management around the world is using it because when sharks ping on beaches, then they know.
1: Yeah. Awesome. Well, Chris, it has been such an honor and a pleasure talking to you today. I have one last question. Are you hiring? Lay it on me. Are you hiring?
0: <laughs> <laughs> hey, you already are O-Search. o is so open sourced and inclusive that, you know, the actual number of people that work at o is only like a half dozen people. Right, yeah. Uh, and then we got another half dozen on the ship that run the ship and move it around to capture sharks for the scientists. And then all the scientists come from all the different institutions and we bring them together. So it's really a big open inclusive organization that's just kind of come together on a common mission. And so you already are.
1: Oh, I'm already hired. I'm going to put it on my resume. That's <laughs> awesome. And I might come bother uh, you and your team in uh, Jacksonville sometime. So uh, we'll, we'll.
0: Anytime. Come out on Expedition with us. We do an expedition out of Jacksonville. We'll be doing one next year in February or March.
1: Oh, my gosh. My heart's racing. A hundred beats a minute. That is awesome. I will definitely be in touch. And we're gonna we're gonna keep following you guys and learning more about ocean and spreading the message on how to save oceans, how to reduce our plastic consumption, and of course, how to conserve apex predators like the great white and tiger sharks and other things like that so thank you for your time chris i look forward to future conversations and i appreciate all the work your staff does to get this message out there it's just incredible it's been an incredible interview I thank you from the bottom of my heart well it's a privilege to be
0: yeah, it's a privilege to be able to do it i look forward to next time and one final bonus question do you know where the word "o search" comes from
1: Ooh, you stumped the chump well, there's os- it oh, it's is ocean, ocean Research. And
0: re- it, it's Ocean and Research pushed together.
1: I love it. All right. Yes, yes. It took me a second, but it's a <laughs> gorgeous name, and it's a pr- an amazing mission, and you're doing an incredible work. So keep it up, and I look forward to keeping this conversation going. Thanks for having me. Thank you.